Dear Asian Americans, let's celebrate, support, and inspire. Welcome to episode three of Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and today I am so excited to share with you my conversation with Rajiv Satyal, a.k.a. the Funny Indian. There's a good chance that you've seen Rajiv perform his jokes all across the world and on the Internet, where he's now racked up more than 50 million views across all the platforms. Rajiv shares with us his story as an Indian-American child growing up in Ohio, his academic and early professional career, where he worked at one of the world's largest companies and on to marketing bottled water, of all things, and eventually what he does now, which is to bring smiles to all of our faces. And we'll also hear how he was the first comic ever to perform on all seven continents. I am glad that I can call Rajiv a friend, and I am so happy to be able to share my conversation with you today. So without further ado, I present to you Rajiv Satyal. Hey, Rajiv, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is the uh, launch week of the Year Asian Americans, so I've collected a gathering of my favorite Asian Americans uh, who are, one, doing a lot of great work in the community. But I wanted to focus this week on Asian Americans in the community who are bringing positive reinforcement and good you know, attention um, to us. So I, I thought of you. Um, we've known each other for some time, and you're funny as hell number one. And I know that you you make a lot of people proud to be Indian American and Asian American. So introduce yourself to the audience. Wow. Thank you very much for the kind words. Appreciate that. It's been a pleasure to know you as well online. As, what are the kids saying? IRL in, in real life, uh, <laughs> offline, but mostly our interactions I know are on, on the good old, on the good book on Facebook, as it were. So I'm a stand-up comic originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. been living in Los Angeles, California for 14 years. been doing stand-up for 14 years. I don't know. I have, what, 12 videos with 100,000 or more views. The I Am Indian video went super viral. It has maybe almost a million on YouTube, but it mostly went viral on Facebook. There's one share that has about 20 million views, and then it really went viral on WhatsApp. And that's my luck. Asians, Indians included, love numbers, but there are no metrics on WhatsApp. So our best guess is it's 50 million views. Who knows? That is awesome, man. And and one of the things, before we, we go into your story and how you ended up here, one thing that I want the audience to know and why I think you resonate so well is you are an Indian American comic or an Asian American comic who has not used accent sticks or self-deprecating as a community jokes to, you know, make somebody laugh. I, I think it's it's very timely. Uh, Hank Azaria recently said, I'm not doing the Apu voice anymore. And so that's created a lot of conversation in our community of was that ever funny to begin with? And while I do think it's cool that he says no now dude, you've been doing it for 30 years. And I'm sure this wasn't the first time somebody said, maybe you should stop. True. I wrote a piece about it. That was, it was funny. And it, it's kind of, you know, po- probably why I'm not more successful than I am. I call myself the man in the middle. I wrote a piece that went viral on Medium. It was made the front page and the editors contacted me. and got a lot of looks on it. And it was a pretty liberal piece about the boys who cried wolf. And it was a very pro Michelle Wolf piece after her take at the correspondence dinner. And then I wrote a piece called The Problem with the Problem with Apu. And it was more of a conservative take on, hey, look, I was in defense of Hank Azaria and some of the things that he did. In this very room, I had Uthkar Shambudkar, and he was uh, he was on my show to talk about The Simpsons and some of the other things he did because he was the first Indian ever to appear and the first South Asian to appear on The Simpsons and do a voice and all that kind of stuff. So long conversation about, you know, was it okay, evolving standards, et cetera. So Sometimes you just reach a fever pitch, you know, something was conceived of in the late 80s, it becomes a job, and who gets hurt, but then eventually you hear the stories of people who are hurt by it, and you hear the people, the Asian folks coming up, the Indian folks coming up, who say, actually, that voice was pretty painful to me, it hurt me, it gave a lot of white kids ammunition to harm me, and things like that, so, you know, I applaud Hank Azaria for for coming around to that, but you know, the timing of it, 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 I don't know him and I don't know his heart. So it's very, very difficult. Sure. I, I, I just bring that up because I think mm-hmm. you watch a lot of comics from our community. And um, this is not an attack on anybody personally, but I do think that in the spirit or in the in the mission to get somebody to book you or to laugh at you, you know, making fun of yourself, which is fine. But then when myself then becomes my entire country or my entire language, particularly when it comes to negative stereotypes or accents, I do think that you're not necessarily thinking about the little kid who then has to deal with the repercussions of that uh, many, many years later. True. You're from Cincinnati, Ohio. True. Um, 
tell us a little bit about how the Satyal family ended up there and and more so of how growing up in Ohio has impacted how did that inform your view and your self-awareness as an Asian American? Yeah, so at the time it was interesting. We only probably had uh, I guess about five or six Asian kids. So when I when I think of Asian, be interesting to get your take on this. I think of South Asian and East Asian, right? So East Asian being folks who look like you, South Asian mm-hmm. people who look like me, and all that sort of thing. There were two in my class of 500 of Indians. I think Ashila Mira and I, I think we're the only two Indians. I hope I'm not missing anyone at this point. It's been <laughs> 20 plus years, guys. Sorry. <laughs> and Asian-wise, Jason Chang, who's Chinese, Gail Santos, who's Filipino, I believe. I hope I got that right. And there were other, uh, there might have been a couple other folks, but for the most part, I think that might have been it. And you know, Jason Chang, shout out to him. We we were friends. He's still in D.C. We saw each other last year. You know, he was an Asian hood. He listened to metal and he had long hair and he had leather pants and ripped jeans and all that kind of stuff. And to me, I wasn't like, oh, he's an Asian guy who's into that. Oh, that was just Jason Chang. And he was just, you know, he was right. just a metalhead. That's what he was. And, you know, the things that I was into, I was just into. But later I found out, oh, wow, all Indians are into tennis and all Asians play ping pong and all of us are good at spelling and all the things that I was good at. I found out later that those were stereotypes, but I'm like, wow, I guess I am the stereotypical Indian Asian guy in America. Oh, that's fascinating. Cause I, I think we think of, and I don't want to say most, but the more vocalized or more shared Asian experiences come from, you know, the major cities that obviously there's reasons why, you know, groups have immigrated there en masse. Um, but you even went to you know college in Ohio. The demographics then it's currently about five percent Asian. I'm sure it wasn't any higher. You know when you were Definitely in school. Lower, yes. At what point did you realize some of the people see me differently, or you know that I need to celebrate my Indian American culture? Or when when did you have that realization? I think that realization didn't happen until much later. It was when I went to college. I went to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland and was talking to two two Asian guys this morning and last night from uh, Case Western actually, and just trying to figure out some stuff with them plan wise. But we all kind of gravitated towards each other. It was the first time on our floor that we had Asian, Black, White, Latino, you know, Native American. Everybody, it was, it was all uh, boys. I guess I got to say men now, uh, 18 plus on this floor. <laughs> it's funny thinking of us as men when you're 18 years old and 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 doing what we were doing. But, you know, we, we were overtly racist in an inclusive way because there were, we had Jewish, we had Christian, we had Hindu, we had Muslim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the stereotypical jokes came out as a way to bond with each other. And you would always check in. I don't know if you watch Succession on HBO, but they're really mean to each other on this show. But there are points where somebody is genuinely hurt and genuinely in a position of weakness. And you get that sibling camaraderie of one of them looking at each other like, you okay, bro? Are you all right? And so, you know, they love each other, like deep right. down. It's like, I want to rib you, you know, I want to rib you and I want to rip on you and all that. But if you're really hurt, I want to make sure you're not actually hurt. You're, this is a joke, right? Or this is cool. So I think that's kind of how we grew up. What were sort of your parents' expectations in terms of what you should study, right? So you don't major in stand-up comedy. Very true. Um, and, and you don't go to that if obviously you knew or you wanted to come back to LA to stand, do stand-up comedy. So take me through your process of what you thought were expectations of you. When did you know you wanted to do comedy? And what was that struggle like between what you thought you should be doing based on parent and community expectations and Rajiv being the funny guy that you are today? Sure. No, that that's funny. I just got back from Antarctica, as one does. And I went with Joe Cucci, who was my roommate in college and, uh, you know, of Italian descent, but uh, white guy basically in America. And we were talking about this, uh, the idea of how we were raised, you know, and his father became very, very successful at Procter & Gamble. I worked there as well. And, you know, I said... To this day, I was raised believing that even now when I see people, I'm like, okay, there are doctors and there are failures. Like, that's it. (laughs) Like, everyone else is like Michael Jordan, Barack Obama, us, whatever we're doing, no matter how successful we get. It's like, that's cool, but you're not a doctor, right? Lawyers will make that list either. In in the Indian community at the time in the 80s, it was only doctors. And then it opened up. And even just doctors, MDs, right? Like, they discriminated. Only MDs. Even PhDs (laughs) didn't get that kind of respect. It was you have to be a medical doctor. That was it. Not a podiatrist, not a chiropractor, not a dentist, no, a <laughs> medical doctor, not even a DO. Just I know all of this. Sure. Right. Me so, too. Yeah. Well, you you know all the <laughs> lingo, right? So all of that being the case, it was just like, that's all you could be. 
And then it became, yeah, maybe you could be a dentist or an engineer. And then later it was like, okay, maybe a lawyer. And then there was this hierarchy, right? And, you know, we uh, before we hit record, we were talking about race. There is a lot of racism in all communities, but it's like, okay, if you don't marry an Indian person, okay, then Asian. That's the next sure, thing. Right. Like, East Asian, okay, if you bring home like a Korean woman, that that that's like the next thing, right? right? And then actually above that, if you're North Indian, then it's like, okay, South Indian will do. Then it's like, okay, then maybe Asian. Okay, then maybe white, right? So there's this whole like like hierarchy to it which is horribly racist it's a horrible thing to say but similarly the the attitude started to widen and now you have people coming up to you saying oh you know it's great that you're representing the community you're on stage you're giving us a voice which is great to hear but joe's family his parents raised him to say when you're i was raised when you're smart you become a doctor he was raised when you're smart you can do anything you want and he goes, I'm not saying that's better. And I interrupted him. I said, no, that's better. Trust me, that's a better outlook on the world. It mm -hmm. is better to grow up with parents who tell you that and a community who tells you that, that tells you that, that says you can do anything you want when you're smart. Because that empowers and enables us to do right. something instead of saying, nope, it's numbers, it's science, it's math. And otherwise, I probably would have done theater and politics and a bunch of the other right. soft stuff that I do. But that wasn't real. That doesn't count in our community. Correct. Like if you've got a degree other than engineering or pre-med by that point, the 90s. You failed. You didn't do it. You know, I think there's so many people listening to this. I'm in my mid-30s. Like, you're in your mid-30s doing something that you were told to do or you thought was the right thing. Or, you know, heck, maybe you're a high school or a college student. And you're like, wait a minute. I want to do comedy. I want to tell stories for a living. I think the idea and the dream and part of the reason I am doing this is to let all those people know, I don't care if you're 36 or 16. You should be able to pursue what you want. And, and I think part of the thing that came to me very later in life, um, and I'm still, you know, relatively young and have so much to learn, but is that I think our parents were extremely well-intentioned, but what they didn't necessarily do was to separate their sacrifice with the result of sacrifice. It was a lot of, I moved here, I worked my ass off, therefore, the only way you can make good on that sacrifice is if you fill in the blank. And that fill in the blank, it sounds like for you, was MD only. For different communities, it's... Lawyer, you know, doctor. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, or, you know, in the community I grew up, it's like, if you became a pastor, then that was sort of cool, right? Because then it's... Right. But only if you get a master's or whatever, right? So I think it's super inspiring to hear stories like yours that you went down a certain path. You mentioned you worked at Procter & Gamble. What, what, what did you do there? Was that... I started in purchasing, actually. It's funny because I, I was majoring in materials engineering at the University of Cincinnati. So I basically failed out of Case Western because I was directionless. I was pre-med, but I was, you know, when I look back now with 20 plus years of perspective, you go, why is that? You go, because that's not what you wanted to do. And I had the brain, but not the heart for it. And it's really one of the passages or one of the lines that had a lot of effect on me early when I was 18. I read this, but it took a long time to sink in was The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. And there's a part where Howard Rourke, the hero, is sitting in his mentor's office or the person who he admires who was a failed, as a creative, you'll also appreciate this, you know, kind of a comics comic. He was an architect's architect. He was someone who never became commercially successful, but he, he had a vision, a very specific, uncompromising vision of what he wanted to do. And Howard Rourke just goes, I just want to be you. I want to do what you want to do. You know, I can do that for 30 years. And the man yells back at him, do you know how many nights there are in 30 years? And that always stuck with me because whatever parents tell you or uncles and aunties and all these people, you're the one who has to live the life. Right. You're the one who has to get up every morning and go do it. You have to go to bed at night staring at the ceiling thinking, what am I doing with my life? That's your life. You're right. in your own soul, in your own brain, your own atma, whatever you want to call it. That's all within us. So if you hate it, dude, that's going to be really, really tough to to just slog through, just slog through 30 years. I mean, it's hard enough getting through one year of something you really don't want to do, let alone 30. Jeez. Yeah, I, I think the other side of separating the sacrifice from the expectation of sacrifice is on our end is that we can do both. And what I mean by that is you can love your parents and be forever grateful for all the stuff that they did to you, but still say, yet I want to do something that makes me happy, right? I think People aren't necessarily too truthful, I think, when it comes to things like this because you don't want to hurt your parents. Of course. But it's, I wish you'd let me do something else, right? So, you know, it, it's really funny. So I had a conversation with my dad in the last couple of years and I, I went to school, I went to USC, I, I sold real estate and, you know, went to business school and did consulting and took a very, very interesting path around. But, you know, just the idea of marketing and, and people and selling was always sort of of interest to me. So many, many years later, 
um, in the last couple of years, talking to my dad and, you know, I vaguely remember this, but it was reinforced that back when we were growing up in Korea in the 80s, there were only a finite number of channels. My brother and I loved watching the commercials. So what my parents would do is to record just the commercials. Wow. And then reverse DVR. Yeah. And then just the commercials, which would, you know, if your advertisers are listening, this is like, oh my God, this is delightful, right? I know. I'll have to tag PNG in this. They're going to be jumping up and down. And, and then so, you know, when we needed to be entertained or whatnot, they would just play a loop of the commercials because that's what got me interested or that's what, you know, piqued my interest. And I said, wait, you knew that when I was five and why the hell didn't you push me or at least encourage me to do marketing or, you know, it was, but it wasn't in their world, right? My dad's a doctor. So like in his even more, not narrow view, but in his world, he became a doctor and that was a path of success. And so it was, let's make sure that you guys have that same opportunity. You know, I think I knew in junior high school that I didn't want to become a doctor. And so my parents sort of accepted that. It took a little bit longer for my brother. Jay, if you're listening, sorry. Um, <laughs> Our condolences. And, you know, and then he didn't go to med school either, but at least, you know, I think they expected him and then he felt the pressure to go down that medical path for some time. But I do think that we all come to a point where, you know, we wake up one day and go, wait a minute, I have to live the next how many ever years? I have to then not only live with myself, but organize and categorize my feelings towards my parents of what I did with their sacrifice. Then looking forward, now I have two young children. It's like, can I look my kids in the eye when they're older and say, I made you proud or I did this for you or, you know, a little bit more beyond I hustled my ass off so, so we can pay rent, which is very, very important. But, you know, what are we teaching our kids to dream big and, you know, pursue things if all the aunts and uncles are doing one of three things, right? So <laughs> um, true. when did you know that you wanted to leave um, a career at PNG and, and head west, as they say. As they say, head west. Well, it's funny that you also had a Freudian slip when you said all the things our parents do to us. And I'm like, because there's some <laughs> things they do to us and there's some things they do for us, right? But it's funny that that came out like that. And you're right, though. There, there are things that we don't necessarily want to say, but but it's it's true. So as far as answering your question in terms of going coming out west, I think I knew I wanted to do it deep down. But I was getting a degree in materials engineering at mm -hmm. University of Cincinnati. And I was number one in my class at this point in time. I really, really focused, failed out at Case Western, moved home, really, really hyper-focused and worked really hard. And my, you know, my classmates would tease me. They're like, well, of course you're number one in the class. You didn't take the weed out classes here. You got like, you essentially basically like skipped the first couple of years. Like that's where we got all our C's. Now we're getting our specialty courses. I go, that's not hard. That's not fair. The, the higher classes are harder. Like, oh, come on. All these professors yeah. just give you an A or whatever. It's like, oh, come on. That's not how it works. But I, I do understand what they're saying is that you, you, you miss the hard part of the curve, the, the weed out classes. But at any rate, heading towards graduation, number one. And then I was going to go work as a semi in semiconductors. I was going to work as a wafer fabrication engineer in the Silicon Valley, which that is hyper Asian. Like that is like <laughs> right up the alley. And so I was going to do that. But then I got a call from Procter & Gamble. I, I grew up in Cincinnati. That's world headquarters. And it was on the business side. It was in purchasing product supply. And eventually I moved into marketing. So to your point about advertising, I, I loved advertising too. I still do. And I did that. So, you know, six years of that sort of stuff. And then I turned 30. I flipped out and I realized I'd been in Ohio my whole life. And I got a job at Fiji Water out here. My my manager, I actually worked with mostly Asians there, too. I'm not playing up the Asian angle just for, because you're here. It's just funny that in the last 24 hours, all these these memories are coming up. It's so, like stumbling distance to Sautel, which is yeah, that's right. Exactly so where right. It goes. you know where it is. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's on it's a very Boulevard. Asian, even location it wise. Is an extremely Asian location. We would go out to have have sushi every now and then, but I I didn't uh, didn't go out to lunch much because we were so busy. We worked you know, like fourteen hour days. Who knows? It would be that hard to market water, right? But it is the it is the hardest marketing in the world because it's water. I, I see you've got a water bottle here. I've got a water bottle here. It's hard. It's water. How much can it be different? Well, it can be, and a lot of that is going to be branding and advertising as well. So I got out here almost by accident. I mean, I took control of myself just saying, okay, I want to go do something. I got to make a geographical change. I got to do something. I wish I would have had the balls just to be like, all right, I'm just going to leave everything and go do stand-up comedy. I've been doing it for four years on the side. But that's really early. To the kids out there, you might think four years is a long time. It's not in this game. Four years as a comic is very, very little. So to come out here at four years, but older, because I started late. I started when I was 26. A lot of the kids these days are starting, my gosh, dude, I'm like, 
teens they're getting up at uh, open mics and stuff like that. And certainly 18, 19. So when they got the cell phone. So whether it's on Absolutely. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, TikTok, and, right, right, right. That's all of that stuff. So and I didn't say TikTok just because it's Chinese, right? But, you know, I, I did make this point, though. I, I said this two, three years ago. We're talking about China versus the United States. I said the day that China invents something that we use in America is where the game start that's going to change. Mm -hmm. And that's what TikTok is. Because all of this stuff is still invented in the Silicon Valley. YouTube yep. and Google and Instagram and even Snapchat. But TikTok came from overseas. Correct. And that's when you're finally seeing a title change of, whoa, we didn't innovate TikTok? That that might take down Instagram. We don't know, right. but it might. Correct, because WeChat and other things never sure. had traction here. Globally, you know? they did well. WhatsApp is still king. I think I think WeChat, and I think there's one. Is WeChat the one that's used in China broadly, or there's another Correct. one that's used? Correct, and then KakaoTalk okay. is the big Korean one. Right. So those things never, I still use it, but it's not a you know household name. Absolutely, um, and certainly not here. Correct. And so, and there's no fame like American fame. Being able to crack this market is mm -hmm. always and and, and the coveted Gen Z, Gen Alpha, you know, the, the teenager forever, yeah, brand loyal the, the and, and you yes. know, right? They're so all it's, on TikTok. It's wild. Um, it's crazy. What did you want to get off your chest so much to express yourself with the microphone on a stage? What was some of that content like? Yeah, no, and you gave me a lot of credit for not leaning into the accent, into the ethnic angle. It's funny. So I'll. Take some credit for that, but then also some blame for that. Because at the time, the first two years, I didn't do any ethnic material at all. I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, started a Go Bananas comedy club in a suburb of Cincinnati. And the majority of the audiences are white. And maybe some black, but no Asian, no Indian, no no Latino even, or, or certainly no Native American or anything like that. So it was a primarily white audience. And... I didn't do any ethnic jokes, no Indian jokes for the first couple of years. And then finally, it's a very long story, but there was somebody who told me you should you should do that. Like that's, a, you know, you should talk about that because that's no one else can cover it. Like the jokes you're doing, they're fine. They're, they're funny and you're making people laugh because in comedy, the first part of it is just getting up there and being comfortable on stage. Right. And making just getting laughs. So you're telling a lot of jokes, jokey jokes, maybe wordplay, that kind of stuff. And then over time, you start to find your own stories because especially now there's so much content. There's so many comics out there that you start to go, what, what's original? Well, your own story is original. And it's hard for someone to say, well, like, well, you ripped that story from. It's like, well, it's my experience. It's hard to say I ripped it from somebody. Right. So, you know, you start to talk about that kind of stuff. But I did some accent stuff. I still I still do a little bit, but it has to be organic. It has to serve right. the narrative. And the way I always explained it, and this to me was I, I think fairly fairly uh, on point, was when I do my dad's voice, I do an accent. When I do my mom's voice, I don't. And I addressed that early on because I realized the disconnect that would create for people in, in people's minds. The reality is, I don't hear my mom's accent. I hear my dad's accent. I don't hear my mom's. I have to even ask people, does my mom have an Indian accent? And people go, yeah, she has a pretty thick Indian accent. I mean, not as thick as my dad's. And her, all, both of them speak extremely good English and write extremely good English. But I don't hear an Indian accent when I hear my mom. And even my brother said to me, really? That's odd because... Yeah, and a friend of mine's mom said, like, how do, how do her students, she taught fourth grade for 36 years, how do they understand what she's saying? And this is a white woman, and she didn't mean it in any harm. I was at her house, and she goes, I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, Rajiv, she has a very thick accent. And I go, like a thick Indian accent? She goes, well, yeah, obviously a thick Indian. No, a thick German accent, right? They were actually descended from Germans. She goes, yeah, she goes, it's not even that. Like, my, she goes, my dad has a very thick German accent. I, I think a lot of kids in fourth grade would have a hard time understanding what he's saying. It's not a racial thing right. against Indians. It's just a foreign thing. And I thought, wow, I, I never, even, I can't hear it. So if I went on stage and did my mom's voices, like, okay, then my mom was talking to me. It's like, that's really disingenuous because in your own mind, now you're doing it for an audience. Right. That's not even your own experience. Now you're really like dancing like a monkey. That's crazy. But my dad's accent to me is very thick. So if I talk like my dad is going to talk like this, that's not even really his voice, but that's the closest I can approximate. And it's a very, you know, sort of general Indian accent, which is what's so great about Russell Peters. Not only the East Asian accents he can do, he can do accents from all over India. And they're very different. Calcutta to, you know, Hyderabad to Delhi and all these other places. But that has always been something I don't think I've ever talked about on a podcast or an interview. But my mom's voice versus my dad's voice, 
I do my mom's voice as American, and it may be throwing maybe may, may throw the audience off, huh. but that's a way I can stay true to myself. Do you hear it now? Now that you've had these conversations and like had you know no. a bit of introspection? No, that's I fascinating. I don't hear it. To me, she just sounds like my mom, but she doesn't. She doesn't sound Indian to me. Is that a factor of you having spent more or less time with one parent versus another? Or I mean, I my parents are together. They're in Fairfield, Ohio. They, I mean, they were together yesterday. Hopefully, they're still together today. <laughs> uh, so I, they are. Uh, no, I mean, I have longer conversations with my mom. Sure, um, but I don't. I mean, I've had. I've asked my dad everything under the sun as well at one point or another. So I don't know. I don't know why that is. <laughs> so let, let's stay on this topic of parents. Obviously, you know, you, you grew up in a community and a family environment where, you know, the limited choices of career options and, and whatnot. And you studied engineering and then you pivoted into marketing. And then one day you had to tell your parents, I want us to do comedy for a living. Yeah. What was that like? It was tough. It was tough. It was, uh, you know, a moment. I was talking about this with a friend of mine. We're putting together a show in New York in February. And we were talking, it's it's called Back to School. And it's kind of a throwback to high school in the 1990s. And a lot of the themes, and she's younger than I, but it was more like, let's split the difference and say we graduated in 98, 99. And so I've been all those talks about, you know, the boy bands and Alanis Morissette and Dave Matthews and Nine Inch Nails and all that stuff. So she goes, what were your insecurities as a kid? I go, well, I mean, I'll just open up and tell you a lot of it was bod body type stuff. I was very ashamed of just being really skinny and scrawny and hairy Indian guy, you know, like BO, like deodorant is something that I had to go ask my dad for when I was in seventh grade. And I was I was terrified to go ask him for that because it was like, I don't know, I'm not a man. I'm only 13. You know, I'm not, I'm not Jewish where I get bar mitzvahs or anything like that. Right. So it was a really embarrassing time where it took me weeks to be able to even ask him. So. I remember, you know, when, when your parents are always your parents, right? So when I had to tell them that I had left Fiji water or Fiji water left me one way or the other, <laughs> you know, I would just like, man, I'm walking down uh, Sautel crying, right? I just go, um, man, I just kind of went back into my like 13 year old self, like daddy, mommy, like this is, this is what I did and whatever. And I mean, they were really upset. They were really pissed off. I mean, it was just like, a big thing for me to leave Procter and Gamble. That would that's a that's a job for life. Uh, Especially being from Ohio. Being from Ohio, being from Cincinnati, that's the dream place to work. I know for a fact that had I stayed there and even downshifted into a role that I easily could have done for the rest of my life in terms of the ability, I would have been making four or five hundred thousand dollars a year in perpetuity for a long time with very low expenses. I mean, you're set. You're going to be a multimillionaire for, for doing work, but the work's not that hard. It's hard. It's not so hard. Right. And so when I read about other people's struggles, I'm like, okay, it's not <laughs> that hard. Okay. So I think comparing it to that, to say now you've left and you've not just gone to like Indianapolis or Columbus, you've gone to Los Angeles. I mean, and now after 12 weeks, you're leaving this job and you're going to be a comedian and I mean, they even said to me, my dad goes, there was a long silence. And he goes, I hope you're not thinking about becoming a comedian. <laughs> and what do you say to that? It's almost like a friend. Surprise. And she's like, I hope you're not thinking about asking me out. It's like, well, not, you know, it's like at the beginning of Spies Like Us, where Chevy Chase sleeps with his boss. And she goes, he goes, oh, I saw my neurologist this morning. And she goes, you're not going to give me some BS that you're dying, are you? And he goes, no, not now. <laughs> like, what, what, what do you say to that? Not, not now. Right. And so I said, no, of course. But the, the irony was, I actually was not thinking about going into comedy. Everybody saw it before I did. This is August of 06. I spent all of September of 06, like meditating, writing, thinking about this. And then at the end of that month, I went, okay, October 1st, 06 is the beginning of my fiscal. I'm going and I had to really sit with it to think about, is this something I want to do? But man, it was a scary time. That happened in your 30s, right? Yeah, I was just 30. Yeah. For a lot of our listeners and, and friends who are listening, right? Like, it's not a very American concept for us to have to even explain or justify, get permission, get approval from our parents when you're 30 freaking years old right. about how you want to live your life. Because so funny, it's, it's not like we're saying, all right, I, I need allowance back because I want to go do something fun. It's, it's you know, I, I think the way that we try to balance our cultural expectations of filial duty and doing right by our parents, it, it's something that I struggle with daily. That's funny. That's true. But, I, I'm so in it. I didn't even think right, about but, that. But I think You're it's right. like for, for the average, you know, I don't know, 
non-Asian person. Joe, because Joe was saying this to me in Antarctica, that it's weird that you talk about being allowed to do something. So Yeah, and it's like it's funny. Maybe a lot of people listen to me like, why the hell would you tell your parents you're 30? You can do whatever you want. It's like, yeah. But that's not the world we grew up in. No, it isn't. I remember my grandmother telling my dad, like, you're always going to be my kid. And at the time, he was 50-something. And I was right. like, that's right. It's all relative, right? So mm-hmm. I don't, my parents don't care I'm 30-something years old. I'm always going to be their baby kid. I was talking to my therapist at the time, and she, you know, she's a Hungarian descent. And we were talking about when you go home, you revert into those roles. Right. So just like I said, going back to being yeah. 13 years old and brothers and whatever. And she goes, if it's any consolation at the time, she goes, I was – I." I think she was 44, 45 at the time. She goes, my sister's 48. And she goes, we go to cross the street and she still grabs my hand. Right. She still grabs my hand. She goes, I'm a 44-year-old woman. I have kids. I I don't need you to grab my hand, but she goes, that's her instinct. Just sure. We had an earthquake what, yeah. a couple nights ago. And my instinct, I woke my wife up, but I didn't mean to. If When I was in my apartment by myself, I don't think you're supposed to get under the covers, but that's what instinctually you do. But my instinct now right. is to jump on top of her. Like I put my hands over right. her head because that's just, I'm, I'm just barely waking up or, you know, about to fall asleep. It was really late at night. I was, uh, I had a late night and my instinct was just to right. go put my hand over her head. Just like parents put their arm out. If, if the kid's right. in the front seat, right. It's just an instinct. But you have a seatbelt there, but you still do it. You still going to do yeah. it. You still want to protect your loved ones. I mean, you do whatever right. you can and you sacrifice yourself. Even you're just like, okay, let me cover. If the building's going to fall, it's going to fall on my head not yours that's just what you do it's just right. it's an instinct i think parents have that same idea that in the same way they want my mom and dad are like they want us to be okay right and they know that my god you're gonna go do hollywood my dad grew up you know his brother and they grew up around holly or bollywood out in mm. india so they know how hard it was they were friends with a lot of filmmakers and bollywood stars and they would come into their restaurants they would meet them and all these kind of things and they were like it's really really hard and it is really, really hard. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. When did your parents, I don't want to use the word accept because it, it's it's very permission driven and I don't want to talk about your career choice in a permission setting, but did they ever tell you, have they told you yet that they're proud of your career choice? Did they come to your shows and, and also talk about, was that a thing for you that you wanted them to be okay with your career choice for you to fully feel that this was your allowed, right? Sure. That's a great question. And, you know, my experience is very different from my wife's. And I think her experience is much more the immigrant immigrant angle from this point of view, meaning that my parents always told us they loved us, that they were proud of us. They encouraged us and all that sort of thing. And my dad, his general posture, I feel like is fairly negative. But in a crisis situation, he's very positive. And he's who you want behind the wheel in an emergency. He's very good at that. He's a very good go-to guy. Day-to-day, I'm kind of like, I don't know, my dad's just going to be upset about something or whatever. But in a, in a, in a situation where you think he's really going to blow his top, like when my brother came out of the closet as a gay man, my dad was like, it was like a made-for-TV movie, Jerry. He hugged him, <laughs> and he just goes, well, you'll always be my son, and I love you. And you're like, dude, what? Like, I thought he was going to freaking burn the house down. And he was like so calm about it, so supportive, and all that stuff for, uh, for, for my brother's sexuality and all that. So, you know, you really can't ask for a person in a better situation right. like that, and, you know, whether it's taking care of my mom or all the things that he does. And so, but he and I get into it just day to day, just we have kind of our, you know, like we're at each other's throats a little bit, but we love each other. That's just the way it is. Whereas my mom is generally a very positive person, but she can see like the downsides of things. She'd be like, okay, be careful with this or watch mm. that. Or I'm like, okay, I read chapter nine. She's like, okay, now read chapter 10. Right. Like that's a very Asian <laughs> kind of like, okay, we'll read it again. Right. Like there was not, in that case, it was never good enough. Right. It was like, okay, well, I got, I got a 95. It's like, why didn't you get a hundred? You know? So sure. they would encourage us. And she was day to day, very, very supportive, very loving, very affectionate, very affectionate family. Her, and so they came to my, my, my shows early on and very supportive. They still promote, they s- sign up people for my newsletter. They bring people to my show. <laughs> they sit in the front row. If they, if I want them to, I usually want them to sit in the middle, not in the front row. They're good about that. <laughs> so they're very, very supportive of all, all three of us as, as sons. Hirsch's experience is much more like Oh, wow, that's interesting. Like my parents were much more very loving, but critical. They showed their love through cooking for you sure. and through clothing you. And that was love. They didn't need to say I love you. They didn't right. need to say I was proud of you and stuff like that. So I think her experience is much more the Asian experience, which is, of course, we love you. You don't have to say thank you. You don't right. have to say I'm sorry. That's all implied. Whereas our family was always a little bit more formal. And I don't know exactly why that is. But is it a factor of you guys having chosen Ohio as your landing place? Maybe. And sort of the more influence yeah. of... Maybe being around more white folks, just being socialized more into 
that and, and parents would kind of pick and choose sometimes, you know, like if you thank them for dinner, they'd be like, thank me for dinner. I'm your mom. I'm right. your dad. But sometimes like you didn't say anything like, where's my thank you? It's right. like, well, which one, which one are we doing today? You know, but um, I think that there's, I think maybe it was that. I think, you know, I'm Punjabi. My wife is Gujarati. I don't know if that had really hasn't much to do with it. But I and because even her dad grew up and uh, spent a lot of time in England. So that's obviously very generally mm. not always not all parts of it. But a lot of the places where the Indians go would be kind of more formal and stuff. So I don't know. I think some of it is just it varies family to family. I mean, there, it may not be a cultural thing as much as that's just your guys' personalities. Sure. And, and, you know, to to brag about you a little bit, you've been invited to perform in India. Big press. Just got done wrapping up performing on seven continents, which nobody else had done before. Your videos gotten 50 million plus views. You've performed on Capitol Hill. At this point, you've made it, right? You've not if, but the Netflix special is coming. The stadium tours are coming. And maybe that's not even the right way to judge your success as a comic. But so what are your conversations like around this is what I chose to do. And like, I feel very confident that I've made the choice because I do think that had you gone into comedy straight out of high school, you'd be a different person, right? Because yeah. you speak on your experience of having studied the things you did and done the things you've done, work with the people that you did. I agree. No, I appreciate the recap. It's always good when someone else tells you your bio. And I don't mean that in a bad <laughs> way. I really mean it because it's good for you to hear it externally sometimes because you've got this internal track. And I think it was Bill Maher who talked about his parents always saying, that our son is trying to be a comedian. And then finally, when he did Letterman or Carson, it was one of them, they would say our son's a comedian. So instead of he's trying to be a comedian, he got that one credit and then all of a sudden he's it validated it. It validated it. So it's interesting. And I'm and, and the reason I went to Antarctica and, and became the first person ever to do stand-up on seven continents was and it's a lesson to the kids out there to to visualize a goal and achieve it. Because you're going to have your own projects and you're going to have industry projects. And I have a little bit of industry success, like a regular at all the clubs here in L.A. I mean, I regularly get up at all the clubs in L.A. I have booked a few commercials. I've had a couple of small roles and TV and stuff like that. But it's not the industry success I would have expected. I would have thought a Netflix special maybe three years ago. I would have done Late Night a few times and maybe in a couple movies and, you know, all that stuff. So from that standpoint, I kind of go, wow, I, you know, I kind of haven't made it. But then you look around at your life holistically. Right. And not just the grand scheme of, hey, you were born in the United States and you get to live here and live in L.A. and it's sunny and all those things. And that that is for sure. But then also you just look at you live, you have a house and you're building a studio right. and you've got this lovely wife and you have friends who want to come to Burbank and interview you and, you know, stuff like that. That is something that right. that is a real thing. And so you you look at it from that standpoint and go, OK, if I get that Netflix special, if I get that appearance on Fallon or Colbert. Will I be happier? You might be. Maybe. I don't know. But you may not be. And, you know, with, with increased success is also increased stress. Right. And so I'm not knocking it and saying, oh, I won't be happier. But you just don't know. And if that in, in a lot of what I do when I meditate every day and when I do all this stuff, I just try to get OK with things. And I try to go, OK, if this is cruising altitude and this is it and you're just going to do this forever, prepare for that. Be ready for that and accept that. Prepare for that Netflix special, the stadium mm -hmm. towards all that. Be ready, be open to it, be moving in that direction. But don't be disappointed because you did make it. Right. And you've accomplished more than you. This is more than I would have dreamed when I started. So you got to look at it that way. You have to go, okay, if Trump is there for three or four more terms, what do we do? Four more terms? Jesus. <laughs> so you got you to go full pessimist here, Jerry. You just got to you got to be ready to accept. I'm a bored optimist, but I've really, the last three years have turned me into a pessimist. So we'll see. Maybe that's good for comedy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Share with us your performing on Antarctica because... Who, who did you perform to? Yeah, it's funny. Penguins, right? A black and white audience. So uh, no Asians there. Uh, uh, even, even there the too? Are, maybe if pandas would have been a little more Asian, but my wife has been to uh, to China and Japan, and I, I really want to go. I've, I haven't been to either. I haven't been to any of the, the East Asian countries at all. Well, Thailand, but Thailand is very similar to India in many ways. So it, it almost feels like it's uh, th those are very similar nations in, in a lot of ways. So Antarctica was great. I had already done uh, the five other continents, and then I went down to Buenos Aires to do a bar gig. I headlined this this show that was an international. It's funny doing these international shows, whether you're in Sydney or Buenos Aires or Paris or whatever, because th those rooms that are advertised in English are going to pull an international crowd. Mm. And so in that room that night were people from literally all over the planet. I mean, Colorado, California, 
LA actually, Playa, Playa del Rey. It was funny to have someone from Los Angeles in the crowd. Then, of course, you had Argentinians. You had people from Ecuador. Mm. The guy from Ecuador was dating a woman for, from Romania. Then you had somebody from China. You had somebody from Russia. You had, I mean, it was just somebody, a couple people from Australia, literally all over the place are in this room to watch stand-up comedy in English in, in Buenos Aires. So I did that, sailed down across the Drake Passage with, with a bunch of Indian doctors. Actually, after all that, <laughs> that's the, the irony is that I eventually go with a bunch of Indian doctors to, uh, they, had, they had chartered a cruise and I kind of glommed onto them, my friend Joe and I, and went down to Antarctica, to the peninsula, and did a, a couple shows, a couple landings on the continent, one for people real quick, because you only have like 30, 40 minutes on the continent before you go back to the boat. So the expedition <laughs> leader, Flo, she was just like, okay, you got to get people. And she goes, you got to get them. You, you got to do it quickly, because people want to see penguins and seals and whales and they could, they know they could see you on the boat. Right. You got two more days to sail back, but you just grab people and I go, I will. I just need to do two minutes. I don't need to do a long set. I'm not trying to do an hour. And then I did some, uh, as a joke to some penguins and stuff like that. So uh, that's funny, pretty, man. It was a good time. What does it mean for you to be an Asian American or an Indian American? What, what, I guess let, let's talk about identity for just for a little sure, bit. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Asian American, we're not a monolith. True. Does the term, which term resonates with you more? And then how do you balance that? It's interesting. It, it is. And I, I think it's a it's a great discussion because I remember when I was running and now this sounds so Asian or Indian, whatever you want to call it, at Procter & Gamble, I was helping lead strategy for online digital interactive marketing. And the first meeting I led with all of these interactive marketing managers was, what do we call this? Is it digital? Is it online? Is mm -hmm. it interactive? And this is in like 04, 05. So in very nascent web, before really web 2.0 even took off. And so it's funny, we spent about an hour talking about it and about 15 minutes in, I go, guys, I know this is kind of weird that we're just talking about semantics here, but I want this discussion to play out because I think vocabulary drives meaning and it Correct. drives the way people think about right. things. So I really do want to spend another hour on this if this is okay with everybody. And, you know, it, we were all kind of laughing at it. Like, are we, is it, does this count as work? We're just sitting here talking about words. And right. It's like, no, but trust me, there, that strategy is a lot right. of like trying to figure out, you know, what we got to think strategically. People don't even really know what that means. So. For me, I, in my video, I am Indian. I say I'm not Asian Indian. I say the guys I say I'm not East Indian or whatever else. So the forms these days are really weird because in marketing, they call us Asian Indian, which I don't like at all. To differentiate between the Native American Between Native Indian? Americans. Interesting. Because you can't even use the word or you're not supposed to use the word. Not can't and not. Let me say it this way. Most Native Americans don't really identify as Indian anymore. Some of them do. That wasn't their chosen name. But that wasn't their chosen name. So it's Native American or indigenous, or it, it varies. It's hard sometimes to really nail these things down. And really, we'd have to ask someone of that descent to, to get a point of view, another point of view on it. Right. But for us, and the, the joke I say in the video is that there are 1.3 billion of us. We don't need a cardinal direction, right? Don't call us East <laughs> Indian. Because it's also to differentiate versus West Indians who are in the Caribbean. Right. But so those folks really are descended from India. And a lot of them mixed with the local cultures, Jamaican, et cetera, on those islands. And so they actually, like Trinidad, Tobago, a lot of their, their ancestors did really come from India. They are really descended. So they are kind of uh, genetically similar to us. We're east, they're west, but it's weird because there are only, I always say, what are there, like 12 of those people? But there are like, there are a couple of million maybe, right. and then there's a billion. So it still doesn't seem to, I think Indian is great, but then what happens with Indian is it's exclusive because we are really considered South Asian, which is the more inclusive term for Pakistanis, Nepalese, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, you know, uh, Bangladesh, all these folks sort of lumped in together is a more inclusive term. But what's happening is then we're losing our Indian identity because there are so many of us. We're sort of bending to the will of the minority, which is not necessarily bad. But then you don't use the word Indian anymore. You say South Asian. And then what happened to Indians? Right. So I think there's that aspect of it. Then when I'm with Asian folks, when I think of Asian, I think of East Asian. So people who look like you, not me. I tend to say, oh, you came into my house, you took off your shoes. And I said, oh, that's a very Asian thing to do because we are Asian, right? right? But if you were Indian, I would have just said, oh, what an Indian thing to do. Right. I wouldn't have said what an Asian thing to do because I'm being inclusive and also 
Asians and Indians do that. Correct. So I refer to your folks as East Asian, our folks as South Asian, but we sort of use them interchangeably when we say, oh, we like math or we like tennis or we like ping pong. I'll say, oh, that's a very Indian or Asian thing to do. So I don't think of myself as Asian in America, but I am Asian American. A subset of that would be South Asian American. Uh And a subset of that further would be Indian American. Correct. When you go to England or across the pond, I think we are looked at as Asian, all of us together. Yep. So it just depends on the context, because even calling us minorities, a friend of mine, Uzzer, in Chicago, he's a comic. He talks about, stop calling us minorities. We are the majority of the planet. It's relative to what? It's very relative. Correct. Our ethnic groups of Chinese and Indian, especially, is 40% of the planet. Mm-hmm. It's like when Louis C.K., rest in peace, said, you know, most people, and he goes, well, most people are dead. You know, mo- if you think about it, most people are dead, whoever lived. Sure. Because most people are Chinese. And it was really kind of funny. It, it's, you know, for the mathematician in me and the, the engineer in me goes, well, not most people are, are Chinese. 0.1%, right? But, for, but, but, but a plurality. <laughs> and, right. and the most people are, are, right. are Chinese. The largest block of the people are. The people are Chinese. Right. Or many people are Chinese. So it's, <laughs> it's what, I, what I say, you know, most people think this. That's a hard thing to prove. That's a measurement. But if I just say many people think this, right. it's hard, very hard to counter-argue. Because what's, what's many? Is that 10 people? Is that... Seven billion. So I, I technically, technically speaking, many is one or more, at least by two or more, right? by LSAT definition or, or some, I guess. So some is one or more. Many oh. is two or more. So when oh, you really? say, yeah, some people are interested, it could mean one. Really? So in, 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 a, in a past life, I studied for the LSATs because oh, well, yeah, I a, a very, very, very good Asian, right? Like right. I, I ended up not going to law school, but I took the test twice. That's one of the things that they teach you, the, you know, the relative numbers terms, which I, I guess is, is a very fitting discussion for, for two Asian guys. Very much so. Um, I'm talking. So some, even if it's one person is some? I think it's just a measurement of the existence of something. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm but, so, so, but it tricks people, right? Because some, many, many feels like a lot that should be multiple. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a relative, most has to be a finite definition yeah, of more than 50%. half. Yeah. Correct. Which is what PK, you brought up PK. Mm-hmm. When I interviewed him, I was doing this diversity talk at Bear Pharmaceuticals up in the Bay Area. I interviewed him and a number of comics about diversity. And he had one of the most insightful points PK did. He goes, 51, not 99. And he goes, 51% of Asians can't drive, but don't think it's 99 because right. I'm a really good driver. Right. So I don't want you to think it applies to me because <laughs> my people generally not very good drivers, but I'm a good driver. So he goes, but it is mostly true. He goes, if I'm being honest, <laughs> I would say that we probably under index in terms of our driving ability. So it's just kind of funny. It's a horribly racist thing to say, but it's obviously an Asian owning it. It's a different thing. But I think stereotypes do come from somewhere. Sure. And uh, it's just kind of uh, an interesting point that that's where we run into it. If you think most people of a group do something, it's like rice. Like we all, right. both of our East and South Asians, we love rice. But it's like assuming a person like is coming to your house. Well, he's Indian, so he'll love rice. Right. But that's racist. If I said I liked rice, that probably would not be a big surprise to right. people because I'm Indian. So. Or this is like the, you know, um, the Andrew Yang thing, right? Like, are we all good at math? Yes. No. no we're not all good at math. But we are. Yes right. and no, right? Like, yes are no. most of us good at math? Probably. Probably. But 51. is it causation or correlation? I yeah. don't know. That's a good point. 51. But then to say that we are good at math because we are Asian, mm-hmm. that's where you cross the line, that's right? That's where, yeah, you don't really know because that that becomes like, okay, then now you're talking about biology and so, instead of sociology. Sure. I just saw him on Bill Maher, and man, he is so funny. I love I love he's, I, I think, you know, regardless of what happens, I think he's done so much for me. Great. Um, people I'm that glad. look like me. I'm glad. Uh, my kids. Sure. You know, to even watch a debate and to have my kids see a dude that looks like him. Yeah, that's awesome. And then so... I, I hope he does well. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope a lot of his ideas get, you know, instituted mm-hmm. regardless of, you know, what happens, you know, here in, in, in 10 months. Finish this last thought. Sure. Imagine you're writing a letter to the audience. So I'll start and then you finish. Okay. Dear Asian Americans. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Namaste, I guess I should say. Hang in there. It gets better. It's getting better. I think it's getting better. I think if you look at Andrew Yang and some of the folks that we've discussed, we're getting more representation. I think continue telling your stories. Look at Aquafina. Look what she's just accomplished. Look at Parasite and where that is. Look at Slumdog Millionaire and some of the things that are just happening in entertainment where in almost every ad where there are at least 10 people, you're seeing at least one East Asian, at least one South Asian. In movies, it's a similar type of thing. You're seeing our representation Keep fighting for what you believe in. At the same time, I think it's important that 
a friend of mine said, you know, the left is not going to beat the right into submission and vice versa. We all have to coexist. And this is the place to do it. So Asian Americans, we live better than any group of people in the world in history. I think that we have the ability to hold on to our culture. I think that we have the ability to assimilate. And I think that with all the challenges that we face, every community faces challenges. We're at a point in time where it's better to be alive now. It doesn't seem like it sometimes better than any time in history. We're living in, with all of its faults and flaws, the greatest nation on earth. And we are so privileged to have parents generally that support us, if nothing else, siblings, camaraderie, and look at Jerry and Rajiv sitting here talking and having this conversation in the middle of the day when we probably should be working jobs as a lawyer and as a doctor and we get to do this <laughs> in Burbank while the sun is shining and do whatever we want. If that's not inspiration for you, I don't know what is. Thank you. That's I think it's very inspirational for a lot of people listening. Share with us where we can find you. Sure. Besides Burbank, people can find me at Funny Indian. They can find me at Funny Indian on Instagram, Twitter, uh, I think even on YouTube and Facebook. Just put in my name, Rajiv Satyal. And the best place to go probably is funnyindian.com. Redirects to my name, Rajiv Satyal.com. It has links to all my social media and videos and things like that. Follow me, sign up for my newsletter, drop me a line. It takes me some time to get back to people sometimes, but I will eventually get back to you. Hey, Rajiv, thank you so much for making time. I've gotten to know you over the last few years. I'm seeing you perform in person, and it is really an honor and, and a privilege to talk with you. You giving people a voice, both here and, and back in India, where they look to you and be like, wow, somebody that looks like me is from my neighborhood, has made it in America. And then that is a point of pride and a point of happiness and really a point of inspiration. So really want to thank you for making the time. I'm, I'm very grateful. Well, that's really, that's that's more more than I deserve, but I really appreciate that. It's really been great to host you and you were very generous. You brought brought us gifts, which we appreciate. And uh, Never go to somebody's house empty-handed that, and take off your shoes. But yeah, o- only if you're holding your own shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Rajiv as much as I did having it with him. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share the episode with two or three friends who you think might also enjoy it. A huge thanks to Rajiv for making time to join us on the show and sharing his story with us. The song you heard that introduced the show is TLC by Justin Park, and we want to thank Justin and Peter Hong of Studio 5A for letting us share his music with us, and to Jason Liu and to Allison Chang, our editor. Thanks for tuning in to Launch Week of Dear Asian Americans, where we're sharing with you five unique and amazing Asian American stories Learn more about our guest and the show at DearAsianAmericans.com, on Facebook and Instagram at DearAsianAmericans. And if you or somebody you know would like to come on the show and share your own unique Asian American story, please let me know. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at hello at DearAsianAmericans.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Signing off on Episode 3 of Dear Asian Americans, I am your host, Jerry Wan.